This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we talk about emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. You can find show notes linking to everything we discuss in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Pavorsky, the founder of Mex, and in this edition we have got something a bit different for you. This is our first ever Mex Design Talk episode recorded in front of a live audience. This was a conversation between myself and Rob Graham, the head of user experience at AstraZeneca, the pharmaceutical company, which we recorded in October 2016 at the MEX 16 conference in London, our global gathering for people uh, interested in better user experience design. Um, It was a bit of an experiment, uh, and we sat down, had a chat about some of the highlights of Rob's career, which spans... Uh, by his own admission, uh, nearly a quarter of a decade now in user experience, starting uh, out with Motorola, working at Vodafone, going on to work for O2 and then uh, Tesco, uh, and now for AstraZeneca. Uh, Unfortunately, being a live recording, um, we did give up a little in sound quality, but I hope some of the interesting uh, topics which come up uh, during the conversation with Rob and the questions which the audience were able to get involved with asking make up for the lack of audio quality. Here's the conversation. Hope you enjoy. Well, Rob, thank you, first of all, for agreeing to be part of this experiment. Sure. Have all of you had a chance to, to meet Rob in the coffee breaks? I know, but I don't know. We won't dwell too much on introductions. Uh, I'm going to get straight into it. Um, Head, user experience at AstraZeneca. Let's go right back. When was the first day you considered yourself to be a designer? Ah, good question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, so my my career in UX or UX design probably just about a quarter of a century now. Um, I guess I guess like a few people in the room, I did a, a psychology degree or a half psychology degree. Came out of that going, what next? I think I found one of those um, careers pamphlets in the university library that said you would agree in psychology, what next? Discovered, <laughs> discovered this thing called uh, ergonomics or human factors or human computer interaction. And uh, I guess from then, you know, that was, that was it. And, and I was, a, I was a designer or a UX person. So have you noticed in the change now in the people that you're saying hire in your teams at AstraZeneca and half that they're coming through compared to, to what you said? There's, a, there's absolutely a much more varied path into into UX now than there used to be. Um, you know, I guess a while back it tended to be you know applied psychologists, you know, people coming through degrees in economics, human factors, HDI, whatever. Now the UX people are coming from anywhere. You have you have graphic designers converting to UX. You have product product managers converting to UX, you have VAs converting to UX. Yeah, it's, it's a hot, as we all know, it's a hot topic now. Um, everybody wants to be a UX person. Um, there's quite a lot of bullshit out there, quite a lot of people passing themselves off as, as UX experienced people when they're not. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a wide variety. You know, all sorts of people are coming through um, into the profession these days, not just those who've been kind of 
relative to that, that narrow, narrow uh, academic field. And what about specific to you know, pharmaceuticals and the healthcare area where you've ended up? Because you, your path wasn't always um, in that area, wasn't it? You spent quite a bit of time there too, um, yeah. and then onto a big retail at Tesco. Um, what are some of the differences that you're just going through that path? Telco, technology, retail, and now pharmaceutical. What's been the big difference for you? Well, it's certainly in, in the world of pharma, um, this whole concept of UX is, is very new. Well, the whole concept of digital and mobile are, are very new to the pharmaceutical industry. And if you'd have said five years ago that a pharma company would have an in house UX team, people would have laughed at you. So I, and I'm having conversations with an AstraZeneca now. That I had 10 or 15 years ago in Telco Land about why don't we talk to our users? And maybe designing something for a mobile context of use is a bit different from a fixed website, for example. And this is new news to, to, to AstraZeneca, and it's exciting and different. Um, so it's just at a very different stage of maturity in that part of the world than it is in Telco world or retail world or whatever, where, where you know, Telcos have had global UX teams for. And you know, since you've been in the world, um, what would you say is the, the initiative that has accelerated that acceptance of your expert organization most rapidly for you? Um, paranoia. So, <laughs> so, so big pharmaceuticals have, have been very successful for many years, making drugs and selling drugs, and, and it's all been fine. You know, they now see the likes of Uber and Airbnb or whatever killing traditionally very successful industries and they're absolutely paranoid about who's going to kill their industry, you know, who's going to kill pharma, who's going to come and eat all the, all the profits that pharmaceutical companies have made for a long time. And so there's now a need to embrace some of these new digital and mobile um, skills they didn't need to embrace before. Uh, so they're hiring from the outside world, from people who've done digital in, in other industries um, to bring in those skills and those experiences into the world of pharmaceuticals so, and start building mobile stuff, to start uh, you know, embracing digital, to start doing UX, um, etc. Is there a go-to industry that uh, that being paranoia is pointing you to? Are you looking at particular sectors where you think there's good bits that you can pull in from? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I think there's just the kind of small startup threat versus the big big established industry. I mean, obviously the Googles and the Apples or whatever are also trying to eat our lunch at the same time. But I think the bigger threat is who's going to come in and disrupt in the way that, you know, Uber disrupted taxis, for example. Okay. Now, I could keep asking Rob questions all day because I love chatting about this sort of stuff. It's what we do on our podcast and, uh, you know, I very much enjoy this kind of conversation. But when you start thinking about the questions that you want to put to Rob, I've got one more that I'm going to ask you uh, and then we're going to open this up and get some discussion going. Um, let's get a bit more specific about you know, what the day job actually involves. Because AstraZeneca is a huge organisation. Um, I know you're involved in you know, various different strands of that digital, but how would you break it down? You know, what are the responsibilities and the outputs for your user experience team? You know, are these inward-facing things? Are they client-facing? I mean, it's really, for my team, it's right across the board. Um, so I have a global team, I have some people in the US, some people in China, some people and we work on anything from the more boring colleague-facing internet type tools, so the things that people use to book their travel or raise their expenses or the global internet or whatever, through 
to um, things that help the process of clinical trials and development of drugs. So, for example, digital interfaces where real-time data from a clinical trial is shared between one scientist and another scientist, so you can you know, quickly make decisions and see what's going on in a clinical trial. And then through to the, I guess, most interesting, which is the doctor and the patient-facing stuff. So we do a lot of stuff on um, patient-facing uh, tools, for example, self-medication devices, which are connected, so Internet of Things. Um, yeah, imagine we make asthma drugs, for example. So imagine a, an asthma inhaler um, that talks to your mobile phone, and if you have to pump your asthma inhaler, your mobile phone reminds you um, to take your drug. And it also talks to your doctor, so your doctor knows you're taking your drug and, and so on. So that, that kind of ecosystem of connected devices and, and connected self-medication is another big and very quickly growing area that, that we're getting involved with. Okay. So, that's the first question they'd like to put to Rob. Yes, Charlie, for that. Um, talking of self-medication and self-reliance, do you think that it will come at a time where we're dependent upon technology for diagnosis even more? So um, I know in the States they've got the talk to Dr. Phil, it's this app in which you uh, a doctor on demand, uh, but it purely is the technology for which they have been able to enterprise a business, um, but still trying to get that medical use out. Do you think we, we, we're dependent on how technology advances to then be able to solve our medical issues as such? Yeah, to some extent, I guess it's. Technology that connects people rather than technology that for its own sake. So if you could be better connected remotely to a doctor or better connected to a, a peer, so peers instead of people that are suffering the same disease state as you, through technology, through social networking and so on, I think that's probably the bigger difference rather than some deep technology that's going to diagnose you automatically. Yeah, so we're keeping doctors, we're not getting AI. Well, doctors, doctors supported by AI, probably the, the near term. Who yeah, knows? How does regulation uh, affect that, Rob? Because clearly, this is a you know, perhaps the most heavily regulated industry for some of the reasons which maybe are emerging from the, these questions. Um, how does that change the work that you do around that? Um, absolutely. I mean, pharmaceutical is not only regulated, but it's also very slow moving. You know, I was saying to somebody before, a typical product, typical drug, um, from when it's ready to go out um, to when you can actually market it and make money from it, that period is something like 15 years. The whole clinical trial process takes, on average, 15 years. So imagine any other industry that is that slow moving. So we're fighting against that culture, and that culture is caused by massive regulation. So the regulators require you to go through that hard process of big, quant, slow clinical trial with lots of paperwork for people signing up Now, you know, some of that is cultural, so bringing, bringing new thinking from outside and people who challenge that and who created you know, a mobile app and launched it and it's out in the market within a couple of months rather than in 15 years, that changes it. But it makes our lives harder um, coming in. Um, it makes um, user research harder because in lots of markets we're not allowed to talk to patients. In the US, in the US Big Pharma can talk to patients direct B2C relationship in all other countries. You know, nobody knows who AstraZeneca are in the UK, nobody knows if their drugs come from AstraZeneca or somebody else. And there's regulation about talking to patients. 
of doctors, mm-hmm. colleagues, um, even in doctor research, there's only a certain number of things that you can say because you're not allowed to be seen as leading or biasing the doctor in terms of which drugs they might bring blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, perhaps as digital emerges, um, you know, that is an area where regulation itself needs to be challenged in as much as it's lagging behind the curve where theoretically digital health services are better based on user input because almost everything is better based on user input. Absolutely. Uh, another question, Emily. Um, one of the most interesting books I read recently is called The Decision Tree. Um, and it is really, it says that yeah, big pharma companies are going to have to change. And one of the reasons for that is kind of what Apple was talking about this morning that it's going to need to be way more individualized. So in the past, you know, you've got like massive drug contracts, and this drug works, you know, probably works for this massive group of people. And that there's a lot of other research that kind of isn't released. That actually, yeah, you can start to really target drugs towards smaller groups of people. So I was wondering where you see, I guess, yeah, where you see the future of big pharma companies. Is it in kind of data and, and what, you know, how you can target people on a more individual basis rather than, you know, across the board? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, in terms of pure medicine and effectiveness of their pills, <laughs> then personalised medicine is absolutely a big, a big field of interest, you know. You, based on your own genetics and your own chemistry, will target a drug just for you. Um, I guess the, the bigger picture is um, drug companies in the future um, aren't going to be paid on how many pills they sell, they're going to be paid on patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. We're going to make our profits about how many, in terms of how many patients get better, no matter whether they take the pills or anything else. And there's a lot of, lot of discussion about beyond the pill services. So. What can we do as, as a pharma company to make patients better? You know, maybe it's a maybe it's a virtual coaching program. Maybe it's setting up a social network so you know, sufferers of the disease can talk to each other. All of those things might help make patients better on top of the pill that we sell them. Yeah. So, so that that blows blows a very kind of narrow industry up into a much wider service industry and where you know, digital can really start making a difference there as well. So if we assume that those product outcomes in the future might be rather different from what kind of like AstraZeneca has, has been used to, um, does that then change, I suppose, what we broadly call the innovation process used to get to that point and where that comes from within the organisation as much as you know, the route which has ended up with the pill as the product? Um, is that an iteration which then becomes a route leads to a digital service at the end of it, or are these more likely, do you think, to come from separate new teams within the, the organisation? Um, yes, absolutely. The need for that kind of wider innovation becomes important. I guess it's it's probably a combination between the more traditional industries. You know, people have always gone out and talked to patients and doctors about what they need from their drug, and they've heard some of these other insights about what patients or doctors need, and just haven't now those insights that you know, you've been hearing for a while, you can act on, you can make the social network or the coaching program or the whatever where you, where you wouldn't have done it before. And I think there are, at the same time, there are also new groups popping up just looking at those kind of um, wider services and, uh, and therefore doing different kinds of research, different kinds of innovation and creativity to, to get to that. There's another hand up. Yes, Alex. Rob, in terms of how you actually bring digital products to the market, 
Is that something that you do internally? Do you hire people in and then and come up with ideas and, and, and do that? Or do you work with external partners, uh, potentially startups? And to what extent, and, and really, I'm sure, I'm sure you do a combination of both, but in the, in the second part of that, do you, how, how do you work with, with external partners? Yeah, so I guess traditionally most of it has been, most digital stuff has been done through external partners just because there hasn't been the digital expertise in house within the company. You know, my team isn't a year old. Um, even even the kind of wider digital and mobile teams are only maybe a couple of years old. Um, so we're trying to change that now. We're trying to be able to do more in house, and that includes the development of stuff as well as just the design and research and stuff we do. So you know we're building in house teams who who design who, who, who can build mobile apps rather than, as well as as well as what we do rather than relying on solely on external agencies to build them for us. So yes, that whole that whole in house thing is shifting quite quickly. I think that, that that's still going to be a, a big reliance on, on external partnerships. Um, you know, we have part of our team out in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, so looking out for the opportunities to partner with, with the kind of digital health startups out there, um, bring technology in and bring new ideas in, that's going to be still a big, a big part of what we do. So you're running a design agency today, clearly an AstraZeneca or some of the other companies that or O2, Tesco, you know, those are the big ticket clients that agencies want to win. Um, but I think everyone in the industry knows that this is a shifting landscape now. There is that growth of in-house teams uh, and a bit of a change in that relationship. What would be your advice to someone who's in that position of running an agency currently? If they want to remain relevant and they want to land a big ticket client like an AstraZeneca, what are the skills that an external partner like that can bring that you either don't anticipate being able to build in-house, or you don't have a desire to build in-house or budget to build in-house? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I was leading an agency, I wouldn't be worried. There's a shit everywhere to And more and more, as, as more and more departments and more and more companies are understand the US and get interested in it, that, that increases the amount of we to work out there probably faster than the, the in-housing of teams can, can cope with. So I'm sure there's still a big, big future for, for all of the agencies that you know, we, we know and love. Now, how to remain relevant or what skills? Um, I think um, you know, I would hire an agency because they're experts. They have individuals who are experts in a particular methodology um, or a particular domain. Um, you know, maybe, maybe one agency is greater ethnographic research with patients. And I haven't got anybody who's a great ethnographer. Or maybe an agency is great at uh, you know, doing uh, lab usability testing of doctor-facing websites. Or, you know, so, so I'll pick and choose based on those uh, niche skills. But there's always room for just pure supplementing the in-house We never have enough people um, you know, to, do, to do the work for us. So there's, yeah, I'd say, lots to go around. Yes, Stephen, how do you how do you regard initiatives from these very large kind of devices software companies like Apple or like ResearchGate, for example? Is that something that's helpful to you in some way or just, just different to to what can be useful to you? Yeah, what's the what's that to be the word competition or you know, yeah. kind of, it's hard <laughs> halfway between, you know, in some instances it's useful for us, we'll partner, we'll embrace it in other in other senses it's a threat and Take business away from us. So um, 
guess key is to keep keep your finger on the pulse and understand what those guys are doing, so you can you know both look at the opportunity and the threat at the same time. When you think back um, personally now to say the first time you came to Max, which I'm guessing was maybe six, seven years ago, something like that. Um, and think about the technologies which were catching your interest then. Where are you with that currently? What sort of piquing your interest on the future radar about what might be relevant to experience design in general? I mean, not necessarily specifically what you're doing in AstraZeneca, because clearly career paths change and uh, you may not be in that, that field forever, but um, what generally is catching your interest at the moment? I love a couple of the themes from today actually. So. Yeah, the, the first thing that they were talking about is um, yeah, N equals one personalization to the individual. Yeah, that's definitely something that now is really possible and probably five or ten years ago was much harder. Just the just the ability to collect loads of data and process it and use it real time to, to kind of adapt and interface, adapt the, the product to, to you as an individual rather than a group. Yeah, that's that's definitely one. Yeah, the the, um, the use of um, emotion uh, an emotional state uh, for the user, you know, there's a research around about how do you adapt a, 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 an interface, a computer interface, based on understanding the individual, that user's emotional state. So, you know, if they're, if they're bored, do you speed, speed things up or change the interface? You know, you know, if, they're, if they're overloaded, do you slow things down? You know, I think that has got a, has got a really powerful future, that kind of world of adaptive, adaptive interfaces. Um, so yeah, a couple, couple of those. Interesting. Cool. Some more hands up. Uh, yes, uh, Tom. It's a point you passed over quite early on, a slightly different topic. You mentioned you've been doing this for quarters of a century. You mentioned you've got um, the intrinsic and the social collaboration bits, which are the boring bits that I know about. I just wonder if we're about to run a big project to redesign or stuff for our organisation. I don't seem to have moved on much. I just wonder what your aspirations would be if you were really have the opportunity to reset, redesign the experience for that solution for all of the AstraZeneca employees, what would you be looking at? Yeah. So primarily the internet. The internet yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting, it's the first, you know, even though I've been doing this stuff for many years, this last year of this job is the first time I've ever been able to put any, any resource towards colleague-facing, internal-facing tools, rather, you know, if I was only two or Tesco or, or Vodafone or whatever, the sole focus was on even though we all saw problems with our various internet tools, we never had, we was never anywhere near prioritizing any particular research and designing those. Um, so it, it's new. I mean, the big, the big problem is that um, a lot of the vendors, a lot of the SAPs and the readers and the oracles and the whatever else are really shit at doing UX. Um, they're starting to realize that, but they've got away with it because the procurement decisions haven't had UX in their criteria at all. So the people from AstraZeneca buying the internet tool, no one, no one has considered the, the experience, the quality of, of the off-the-shelf product. They bought it off the shelf, and you know, no surprise, it doesn't work very well, but you're lumbered with this big, expensive platform that you can't change. So I think I don't think there's anything, anything more fundamental than um, just changing the procurement process so, so UX considerations are in there, forcing the vendors to change, and ultimately, you know, that, that filters through to them becoming better. Otherwise, it's just a 
a case of doing simple user-centered design well, you know, understanding what colleagues want and need, observing them, usability testing them, trialing stuff, you know, the, the things that we always do on, on you know, external places. Okay. We have time for a couple more questions. Yes. Because that's really interesting, this thing about enforcing change and so on. Yesterday we spoke a lot about culture internally in companies and, and how design is affecting that. So I'm just wondering who you see as your main stakeholders within AstraZeneca and how you're trying to influence them to, to, to push the design thinking? Um, well, absolutely. We, we have to start at the top. You know, have to start at the, the, the top board and Luckily, I've got a I've got a boss and a boss's boss who are pretty sympathetic to this stuff, um, which is why I guess I exist in the role I do at the moment. Um, a lot of my challenge now, coming in relatively new and trying to sell this into the business, is making the convincing case studies, you know, making the stories to tell where my team have made a measurable difference to some number in a relatively short period of time. So yeah, this is an industry which is slow moving and drugs take. To get to market, and so we, I need to find projects where you know we could come in, we can do some UCD stuff, and number moves from A to B. You know, whether number is user satisfaction or score or throughput or whatever, to some extent, it doesn't matter. They don't need it, doesn't need to be pounds and pence, but, but I need those quantitative case studies and proof points within a relatively short period of time. So I can't get my team working on something that only pays back in five years. That's what I'm missing because there aren't any in AstraZeneca, there aren't any good stories in, in pharmaceutical as a whole. So, all of the stories we're telling to, to convince people mm -hmm. of our existence are from the outside world, from telco or retail or travel or whatever. Is there a challenge of aligning cycles there in the sense that the digital and experience cycle is often looked to as being something which operates on, you know, as you say, a deliverable but within perhaps six months, 12 months? Whereas you say within pharmaceuticals in particular, you are talking about these fifteen-year cycles. You know, how do you resolve that tension between you being brought in as you know you're the guy who can start fixing for us soon, versus we are still an industry which operates on these much longer, you know, decade-plus timescales? Yeah. So I mean, just to be clear, a lot of the, a lot of our digital products aren't necessarily subject to that level of regulation. You know, if you make a uh, a medical device, then sometimes that is regulated. But if you're doing you know, a surgical network or whatever, that's, that wouldn't be subject to regulation. So I think as, as we do more of those digital and mobile products in a short period of time, it kind of shows what's possible. You know, we'll try and demonstrate that best practice of getting a minimum viable product out within a few weeks, getting that into the hands of real users, getting feedback, iterating on it. Practitioner, 
good question. I, I have I never looked beyond you know, the next year or two in terms of a in terms of a career path. You know, uh, I've always been in big companies, and the next real has always been just around the corner. Um, <laughs> and who knows whether on the roller coaster that's a good one or a bad one? Um, um, look, there's if if you can pop up in pharmaceutical, you know, UX can pop up anywhere. You know, so yeah, whether it's and it's quite nice to be involved, you know, in giving something back to the world. So when I was last looking for jobs, I uh, I had the choice between staying in retail or working for a big department store or working for AstraZeneca. And you know, the choice I one of the decision factors, the choice I made was around, you know, would I be happy working for a company that's likely to cure cancer? Um, and, and that's the trick, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies putting the money in, um, don't get much of the credit out of it to cure cancer. Or would I want to be working with a company that sold handbags? Yeah. Um, and I and there's, there's a bigger there's a bigger mission here. You know, I felt a bit better about myself helping to cure cancer than helping to sell handbags. Well, obviously my, my wife and my mother-in-law and so on were asking about the friends and family deals. And, uh, <laughs> are you sure you want to take that? Can't give me twenty percent of the handbag. It's Joe. This news company um, share some of the story with us, Rob. Thank you very much for. Participating, um, I hope you can stick around and join us for lunch, and um, we can carry on the conversation then. So, Rob, thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. If you're interested in finding out about some of the other conversations which took place at MEX16, you can find a summary of the event at mobileuserexperience.com. Do please get in touch with your feedback. We're at MEXFeed on Twitter, or you can email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Don't forget, there's a full archive of all of the previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes or at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section if you're interested in checking out some of the other discussions that we've been having over the last year or so on the show. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new edition where we're talking to Matt Hunter, the Managing Director of the Central Research Laboratory. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.